Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. So we'll have an hour together today as usual. Uh, our focus will be on questions uh, related to practice, questions that have some immediate importance that need an answer for the well-being and spiritual benefit of the person asking. So if you have questions, please feel free to post them at any time in the chat. Uh, we'll spend the first 15 minutes with a silent meditation. You can do either walking or sitting or lying as you like. In the meantime, those people who have questions, please feel free to post them in the chat. And we'll be back in 15 minutes to start answering.
All right, we're back. So now we'll start on questions. We have a few questions already, so feel free to post them in the chat from now on. Anything that's not a question will be removed from chat. No discussion or answering people's questions. Just post your questions or close your eyes and keep meditating. Hello, everyone. 36 viewers. Good to see you all. Ready to begin. You have questions. I have observed that when I start doing regular practice, I start to wake up early in the morning to the point that sometimes I wake in the middle of the night. Do you think this is because of the practice and how to mitigate this? So uh, the practice is too contradictory things it it can be quite stressful and disruptive uh, but on the other hand it is actually um, quite pacifying and um, purifying and i want to say some word that makes you more natural naturalizing which i don't think is the right word but something like that so the thing is that Mindfulness is not something that we're generally good at. Uh, it's quite common that someone comes to meditation without a predisposition towards mindfulness. And so it's quite a disruption. And the process of cultivating mindfulness, like the process of developing any skill, can be quite stressful uh, and disruptive, which are, I guess, two very different things. So the stressful um can actually cause stress and suffering but disruptive is a little bit different in the sense that it disturbs the ordinary habits that we become accustomed to some of them are some bad habits that although they're bad habits can be comforting and so it's uh, disorienting or disorientating to uh, start to be mindful now that's all really very preliminary uh, but it can cause chaos in things like sleep structure when your mind is going through changes and your body as well can go through some changes as a result. Some people through meditation, it's rare, but it does happen that some people start to to uh, vomit as a result of meditation practice. Just strange physical things can happen as well. It's all, pre again, preliminary. It, it works itself out and actual mindfulness is very different so in the beginning you're you're not really that mindful as a result of practice it's stressful and disturbing and you're doing it wrong quite often moreover you're often trying very hard to do it right uh, trying to fix problems in your practice and so the approach is wrong because mindfulness isn't about fixing not even fixing your practice it's not about controlling or forcing so in the beginning, there's a lot of issues. Um, the issue of waking up, you know, realize, changing the way, the way you look at things, changing your perspective, and being forced to see that the way you approach problems or issues is, uh, is stressful, is a cause for stress and suffering. And that comes at a cost of having to cause stress and suffering in order to see that you're causing yourself stress and suffering. Um, so bo both of those things, the disruption and the stress and the, 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 the 
mistakes that you made, the bad habits, uh, can can actually disrupt your your sleep pattern. But another thing that happens, which is probably more likely the case here, or quite possibly any the case anyway, the case here uh, is that actually the the purity of the practice and the the more natural uh, state of mind actually means you need to sleep less and it i mean i guess relating to the disruption of other habits it can lead to having strange sleeping patterns which are not um, in and of themselves intrinsically a problem but can interfere with other schedules that you have work schedules for example Uh, so i guess to to give a short answer is i i I wouldn't uh, worry too much about it i would try to focus mostly on uh, being okay with being awake and being mindful while you're awake and probably two things will happen one you'll be less disturbed by the fact that you're up so early and and also there will be a sort of balancing out Uh, i think over time it's not likely that you're going to have to deal with waking up at midnight all the time Um, another thing is that just the body is unpredictable and goes through changes so seeing the uncertainty the unpredictable nature of things like sleeping patterns is just par for the course and may have nothing to do with the practice directly and just have something to do with the natural state of the body Uh, often people who don't practice are very much prone to insomnia as a result they get stressed about the fact that they're awake and they might as a result of what you're experiencing try and force themselves to stay up very very late and then just develop bad habits of stress over sleeping so it most likely uh, some of it will happen to people who don't meditate at all but there, there's lots of issues at play. Ultimately, it, it, it falls in the category of things you should be mindful of rather than trying to fix or change. We're not trying to uh, force ourselves to be a certain way. We're just trying to be as mindful as we can. Ultimately, you're just going to get old, sick, and die, and you're not sleeping. An ordinary pattern is, is not, um, not the, the biggest issue you have to face. So, I mean, try to see it like that. Try to be mindful and work with it as best you can. Sleep is such an issue, you know, not being able to fall asleep when you want, waking up too early and then being stressed that you're not going to get enough sleep, that sort of thing. It gets quite psychological and and drives people crazy because uh, of their preconceived notions of sleep, their desire to sleep, their worry and stress about sleep and schedules and so on. And so it, it is an important uh, object to try to be more objective about. Try not to fall into the trap of uh, views about how much sleep you need and, and the importance of sleep and so on. What's most important is that you're mindful and, and your mind is at peace. Sleep doesn't always bring that, and certainly trying to control your sleep patterns doesn't bring that. How can you work with anxiety during meditation? Well, you take the anxiety as an object of of meditation. Uh, Sometimes this sort of question is asked with the idea that it's getting in the way of meditation. So you have to understand 
that with mindfulness that's not the case. The anxiety is a valid object of mindfulness meditation. So try and focus on it and, and see when you're anxious and remind yourself that it's just anxiety rather than seeing it as a problem, as something that needs to be fixed. Try and just say to yourself, anxious, anxious. Uh, and, and of course, being mindful of the other things. One of the things I've always said about anxiety, I say this often, is that it's not just the anxiety. What you perceive as anxiety is often bound up with the physical. So there are physical effects of anxiety, like tension in the body, butterflies in the stomach, a beating heart rate, headache, that sort of thing. All of these things are not anxiety. And so by um, jumbling it all together and calling it anxiety, it, it perpetuates itself because the physical results of anxiety make you more anxious. As you see that you're anxious, you feel worse and, and, and wish you weren't anxious and so on. You get get stressed about the fact that you're stressed. And it, it just makes you feel worse and worse as you react and react to your reactions. Uh, so try and also see the physical as as something distinct and, and neutral. They have nothing to do with anxiety directly in the sense that they aren't a problem. Anxiety could be labeled as a problem. It's, it's unwholesome. It's a cause of stress. It's, it's a reaction, so it's not mindful. But the physical are things you can be very mindful of. So when you feel all the physical sensations, you just not feeling or tense or pain or aching, whatever. And note those as well and try and see them as distinct. Uh, because another thing that happens is even after you've noted the anxiety and it goes away, the physical persists. And you might think that the that it, mindfulness is not helpful because it doesn't make the physical sensations go away, but it really should make the anxiety go away temporarily. And if you're dil uh, vigilant, diligent, and are mindful of the physical as well, you can prevent the reactions of further anxiety based on the physical experiences related to anxiety. So be mindful of those two things. Also, of course, any other thoughts you might have, any uh, ideas or, or views that lead to worry or anxiety, any memories or plans for the future, thinking about work, thinking about what you did, what you have to do, that sort of thing. Make sure you're mindful of those, not trying to stop them. And we're not even trying to stop ourselves from thinking, but just reminding ourselves, this is thinking. Keep yourself objective rather than creating this chain of, of uh, bad habit. Mahasi Sayadaw prescribes noting intending before any bodily movement. Should we adopt this practice? He suggests it. Suggests it. I wouldn't recommend it after every before every single bodily movement. What we recommend generally is to note the postures. So when you go to stand up, note wanting to stand. Wanting is maybe a little less formal than intending. Either one works. Um, when you want to sit down, when you want to lie down, the four postures, when you move from one posture to another, try and note intending before. That's pretty reasonable. It's unreasonable to think that you should note in wanting before any movement. But... You might often note that when it's a very deliberate movement and you're very clearly aware of the intention. He says, as he says, once you note, notice the intention, then you can note it. You don't have to go deliberately looking for it. How does one cultivate concentration with mindfulness?
so mindfulness is kind of begins as a form of uh, morality which may seem kind of weird but it's a ordering of the mind uh, so as a result of mindfulness as a result of mindful practice the mind becomes pure and it becomes focused it becomes objective and all of those things create a certain sort of concentration an important uh, thing called concentration i mean it it leads one to the other the ordering of the mind uh, which is which is morality in the sense of rather than seeing this as bad or a problem or clinging to it as me or mine your your ethical you have an ethical state of mind which is this is this it is what it is it's an objective impartial state that leads that's the 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 morality which leads directly to concentration i mean in a sense it you can also describe the morality as concentration which is why they go together morality concentration and wisdom um, because the concentration is the ordered state of mind that is sort of uh, affected by uh, the the ethical moral mind state your mind is pure your mind is focused your mind is intent upon the object all of those things happen as a result of the ethical ordering that comes from mindfulness and because the object is ultimate reality that focus that concentration leads to wisdom so it doesn't just lead to concentration it leads to ethic to morality concentration and wisdom three things kind of in order but also kind of together it's not like they happen one after another though kind of they they can sort of be seen as leading one to the other it's a good way of looking at it ethics morality leads to concentration concentration leads to wisdom but the concentrated mind sees clearly so as a result of having a concentrated mind there's clarity and 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 wisdom understanding about reality Does sati in meditation not mean more like memory in background, like in a context, not fixing on momentary experience? Yes, it does not mean that. Uh, sati means sati means something like remembering. It certainly doesn't mean memory, which is better a translation of sanya. Sanya can often mean memory. But sati is an is an active quality of of remembering. So if you remember things that happened a long time ago, it means you've got good sati because you've got good ability to remember. Uh, but in of course in in satipatthana practice, nothing to do with the past. It's mindfulness of the present. So it's a memory of the actual experience. Uh, it's a remembering, and the pra the active practice is reminding yourself, like the Buddha says, when walking, one sees clearly knows clearly i am walking so just reminding yourself i am walking is a means of cultivating sati which of course leads to sila samadhi and banya as i mentioned um, but it's nothing about memory i don't know what memory and background actually means but like in a context that's not sati if anything that sounds like you're talking about sankharas or sanya one or the other but uh well, sati is a sankhara, I guess, technically, but not like that. You're thinking of uh, some kind of dhammaramana, I don't know, some thought.
In sitting, I correct my posture about 10 to 20 times in 30 minutes. I note these movements as adjusting. Should I do anything else, like strive to limit these movements or experiment with cushions? No, there's really nothing you have to do there. That's great if you're noting adjusting. You can also note any frustration or liking or disliking or that sort of thing, any distractions as well. I mean, it's hard. It's uh, something that takes time to become proficient at. Uh, just be patient, really. As with everything else, be patient with it. Note any pain. You could, um, rather than move sometimes, note the, the sensation that leads you to want to move. That can also be helpful. But just be mindful when you're moving. Is it correct to return to the stomach when there's nothing pressing in one's awareness? There is never close to a perfectly single-pointed awareness of the stomach, in my experience. No, we're not looking for a perfect awareness like that. I mean, we're not actively seeking that out. Um, what I recommend is once you've noted one thing, try to go back to the stomach. If there's something else distracting you, then okay, two things or three things, but don't keep jumping from one to another. Try your best after you've noted something and it goes away to just go back to the stomach. Don't worry about catching everything. Try not to. There's a saying, uh, perfect is the enemy of the good. And I think that's a very apt saying for meditation. You're trying to make your meditation perfect it actually makes it worse. It's actually going to keep you from having good meditation. It's uh, probably more true than in other cases that Perfect is the enemy of the good. With mantras, is it helpful to be more specific by using a wider range of words to describe what you are feeling or thinking? Or is it best to keep it simply to liking, disliking, etc.? I wouldn't do either or. I mean, liking and disliking are pretty ubiquitous and they're good, but... Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't limit yourself to one answer or the other to this question. You can generally stick to liking and disliking, but if you experience it as, say, frustration, you should not frustrate it or angry, or if you want something, wanting. It's better to be um, accurate and true to how you experience it. Mm. Generally, liking and liking are just so ubiquitous that they're, they're always going to be good ones. Is there any utility to simply using meditation to relax if you are overwhelmed, providing one does not get attached to using it as such? I mean, it's just so much better if you're actually mindful of the stress and even the desire to relax. That's just so much more beneficial. It's not possible that you won't get attached to it because you want to relax. You dislike the state that you're in and you wish you were in another state and so you're intentionally trying to attain a new state. It's not possible to do to have that mindset without getting attached because it is inherently attached. A or an unattached mind state would not be upset about your current state of mind. It would not be reactionary. It would not need for the state of mind to be something other than what it is. The only way where that you could argue 
suppose you had a intensive or an intense job that you had to perform and so and, and i mean that even could go for monks as well that there's a physical relaxation that might come about uh, through certain experiences like say you were very physically active then you need some some physical rest i don't think you could ever say that there's ever a valid reason to have mental rest the mind just doesn't work that way the mind doesn't need rest it needs clarity all the time and it's only our defilements that make us think that uh, we need rest because we're attached and liking and disliking. I have recently lost my job and have been feeling anxiety over my next steps. Is there a direction or specific kind of job one should aim for as a Buddhist? Yeah, well, right livelihood is a thing. So there are certain kinds of livelihood that you should avoid. And of course, there's going to be, I don't suppose we ever really say this, but there's better livelihood and worse livelihood. So there's right and wrong, and there's got to be better and worse. So what is wrong livelihood? Any livelihood that breaks the five precepts is, of course, wrong livelihood. But I mean, that's pretty obvious. If you're breaking the five precepts because of your work, you're well, not only is your action wrong, but also your livelihood is wrong. But furthermore, there's wrong livelihood of anything related to breaking the precepts, like selling poison, selling weapons, um, selling human beings, selling live animals. Uh, so, and then there's there's better and worse livelihood like worse livelihood is anything related to greed entertainment industry is is not going to be great um i mean this isn't wrong livelihood but you're asking about where you should be focused on so if you have a choice try and focus on livelihood that is helpful helpful to others like perhaps teaching or nursing social work things that are supportive of other people's physical and, and mental well-being. I mean, it's charity and it's kindness and it's wholesomeness. Uh, or, or alternatively, focus on yourself. Find a livelihood that allows you to better yourself. I mean, honestly, that's the best solution. Helping other people can just lead to burnout. And it ultimately has no end because there'll never be an end to the number of people you can help. So if you want to use your livelihood as, an, as a support for your practice, then that's a good thing. Helping others can be a good support for your own culti mental cultivation. But you can also make that your livelihood, where you, you develop yourself mentally, and so you, you take yourself out of the economic structures, live in poverty, live in simplicity, as simple as you can. Uh, maybe even picking up a work that has nothing to do with goodness or evil, like woodworking or becoming a plumber or an electrician, just something that isn't too hard and doesn't make you work too hard, freelancing so that you work when you, when you need to, that in a way that doesn't harm others or relate to defilements, and uh, leaves you free to work only a little bit and focus on your practice. Uh, most important is uh, be mindful of your anxiety because it's never going to be helpful. 
and it can be debilitating. Anxiety is not going to help. I mean, it get in your way of getting a job. It can get away in the way of of uh, interviews and that sort of thing. But most importantly, I mean, it makes you sick and and makes you make bad decisions. So better to be poor and peaceful than rich and anxious. I am suffering from stress-induced increased inflammation in the body, which is causing swelling in nerves. Which meditation can help me in this situation? Well, mindfulness shouldn't be seen as something that can help swelling in the nerves. And, and it can't be stressed enough how important that statement is because it's not even so much that it doesn't. It's that if you approach mindfulness with the hope that it will um, help your bodily inflammation or even actually that it will help your stress levels, that approach prevents you from being mindful. That's what's so special about mindfulness. Your focus can never be on solving your problems because then your focus is not on being mindful. So mindfulness is about being mindful of the things that you call problems so that you no longer see them as problems, which in turn does away with your stress. It also does away with the stress that's caused as a result of the results of your stress, right? Because you're stressed and that leads to physical consequences. And then you get stressed about those physical consequences, wishing you could be free from them. And that's further stress, which actually kind of in that, in this case, probably snowballs. It's a, sorry, it's a feedback loop where the stress leads to inflammation, the inflammation leads to stress, and guess what the stress leads to? So mindfulness absolutely helps break that chain. It changes, uh, changes the perspective so that stress doesn't lead to, well, inf sorry, inflammation doesn't lead to stress, and whatever else it is that's leading to stress doesn't lead to stress either. And the stress also doesn't lead to more stress. But you have to approach it from the point of view of trying to be mindful, you have to learn to face without trying to fix the things that you call problems. So you see your stress as a problem, you see the inflammation as a problem. That's what mindfulness changes. And that's how you have to understand mindfulness if you're going to succeed in it. And that's how you really, honestly, that's how you have to see it if you want to actually solve your problem. And that goes really for pretty much every problem that we have. True, true solving of problems is about becoming mindful so that you no longer see them as problems. I have no thoughts, feelings, or sensations, but experience pure unimpeded awareness of emptiness and rest in it. What should I note and why? I find silence is perfect as it is. Noting was mind training. Yeah, well, if you're enlightened, you don't have to practice at all. I've got nothing to teach you. If that's what, what you're describing is is not something that I would think you need to cultivate mindfulness to be free from. You know, it doesn't sound like that's something you need to be free from. So the question is, do you have any other states of mind, or is this something you experience 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year? Uh, mindfulness might help you see more clearly that that's not the case if it's not the case. I don't know what your case is, but 
I mean, it's very rare for someone to be enlightened, so it's quite possible that you're not telling us the whole story, or else you're not aware of the whole story, that behind the scenes there's some liking, disliking, uh, that sort of thing, and there's some stress in your life apart from this. But what you're describing isn't... Um, I mean, it is something you can, of course, be mindful of, but you're right, that's perfect. If if that's all you experience in your life, then congratulations, it sounds like you might be enlightened. You might not be, because, of course, peaceful states can persist for a long time, covering up or hiding our potential for bad experiences. Also, the fact that you're asking the question is kind of a bit of an indication that you're not perfectly confident uh, either that or you're here to brag about it which can also happen i'm not trying to accuse you of this but just give you ideas about the sorts of things that might happen because of course it's quite possible someone might come on and say this feeling very proud of it and well if you're very proud then that's really a flaw and that's a sign that you haven't made it all the way yet so this thing that you're experiencing you can be very mindful of of course if you don't see the need to well this in and of itself doesn't give you a need to but there may be other things in your mind that do make you want to be mindful of everything. And it's not about being mindful just of the bad things. That doesn't work. Mindfulness is about understanding reality. The better you understand reality, the less those bad things arise. And so this experience you're having is reality. If you feel calm or peaceful, you can note calm or peaceful. If you feel quiet, just note quiet, quiet. Uh, if you're just saying that this happens once in a while and you wonder why you should note it, well, there's your answer, is that it's not about fixing it, it's about fixing whatever else is wrong with your mind, and all of that's going to come from not being mindful. So being mindful of this is just a part of that process. Is it okay to smoke nicotine-free vapes just for aesthetics and cool smoke effects? It has no intoxication or side effect. That's funny. You're asking a monk whether it's okay to smoke vapes. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to stop you. What, what are you asking exactly? Ask yourself what you actually want to know. You want my approval? I mean, it's not something I'd approve of. I mean, the main problem here is, is I mean, okay, give an honest answer, is that uh, there's liking of it. And uh, there's maybe a kind of a, uh ego about it, you know, how your image and how you look. No, maybe that's not what you're talking about. Cool. Do you mean by cool smoke effects that you look cool or that you like the cool smoke effects? Because those are two different things. One is kind of ego and the other is just attachment and liking. So your general, the general question is what's wrong with liking or is there a problem with liking? And there is in fact a problem with liking. And I mean, don't take my word for it. Try and practice mindfulness and you'll come to see that you know, this is hardly supreme bliss and freedom from suffering but but certainly i mean one thing i'll say about those things is apparently they're a very good way to quit smoking if you have an intention to quit if you're intent on quitting smoking apparently see vapes can be very bad because they give allow you to have high amounts of nicotine but there's another way to use them you keep reducing the amount of nicotine and apparently they're very good for freeing you from nicotine addiction over time you just have to you have to be vigilant and, and dedicated to it.
I meditated almost every day, consistently for about two years. However, just recently I have not meditated consistently or practiced formal for days at a time, but stay mindful. Should I worry about this? You shouldn't worry about anything. That's all I can say about this, um, simply because I don't know what you were practicing in meditation. I, I, okay, so I guess I would say that a, a regular meditation practice is very helpful. I mean, it, it's it's you might say it's even important. If you don't have a regular meditation practice, you're you're not really going to get better at it. Uh, you're going to start to get worse at it and develop bad habits as a result. The bad habits creep in kind of slowly. I and mean, if you've been practicing for a couple of years, whatever meditation it is that you've been practicing, it's most likely that you've developed some pretty good habits, whatever those good habits might be, because, of course, different meditations give different habits. But as a result of those good habits, it's likely to become very easy not to meditate. You're just you know, happier in life and more peaceful. Uh, but the bad habits do creep in. They creep in slowly, and then by the time... Well, eventually they're they're consuming you, and it just it's just then harder to get back into it. It's it's can be sometimes very hard to see the benefit or the importance of meditation if life is going well. There's really it's really hard to to overcome that. I mean, this is one of the real challenges in meditation is to see the importance of it when things are going well. Usually, people who come to meditate are those who are experiencing unpleasant situations. Because that's what leads people to f- try and find answers. It leads to a sense of urgency. It can be very hard to see that sense of urgency if you're blinded by sensual pleasures, for example. So, I don't know. I guess I would rec- I'm not sure if you're practicing what we teach. You might want to try it, see if it helps. If you are practicing this sort of meditation, um, work, do what you can. Try and don't, don't. Don't see it as a narrative where I have stopped and I don't practice formal meditation. Do some formal meditation. Don't give up on it. Don't think just because I'm yesterday I didn't do some that today I won't. And you might find that you do start to see the benefit and the importance of doing formal meditation again. But it is something you have to work at. You can't just expect for it to suddenly be easy or or uh, automatic. Is having casual sexual intercourse with different people considered breaking the sexual misconduct precept? And are energy exchanges of the people engaging in the act a real thing or concept? No, the first part. No, it's not breaking the sexual misconduct precept. It is not. It's breaking the uh, the eight precepts. But not the five precepts. So the five precepts are something that one undertakes as a means of sort of um, setting boundaries that are consistent with rebirth as a human being. So breaking the five precepts leads to hell. Having sexual intercourse with different more than one person doesn't have that effect, generally speaking. And it's not a horrible thing to the extent that it's hurting other people, so the idea that you might go to hell is pretty far-fetched. It's not really related. Um, as for the second one, I don't really have a comment. Uh, I think that it's a valid question, it's just not a valid Buddhist question. It doesn't have any interest to us. So whether it's real or not, I actually don't know. 
I kind of get the sort of thing you're asking about. I'm not 100% clear, but even if I, uh, if it was clear, I would just say it's not, this isn't uh, what Buddhism is about. I'm not really interested. Because there are strange things, physical energy, mental energy, that sort of thing that Buddhism is just not interested in. And I think that's the proper answer. That it's not that we can categorically say one way or the other, it's just we're not really interested. It falls under the realm of, of uh, facts, I suppose. Facts are not really interesting to us. Like, like, is it like this? Is it like that? It's not really interesting. The only thing we're interested in is is suffering, the cause of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the path that leads to the cessation of suffering. So, very simple concepts. That's what we're interested. Those are the facts we're interested in. When one lives around people who are still attached, how can one avoid being exploited or asked too much of? I think pretty simply. You don't have to be a saint. You don't have to be selfless. You are as important as other people, so you do what is proper. You don't. You can, to some extent, I mean, you become more selfless perhaps than before, and you're okay with doing things for other people, but you don't dedicate your life to it. It's not really important for you to do things for other people. So if people ask you to do something, you might help them, you might not. You. What's important is you don't get angry about it. Uh, you try to be rational and, and mindful of it. Now, living with fool, foolish people is always going to be stressful and, and unpleasant, so you just uh, resign yourself to that fact that until I can move away from this situation, that this is going to happen. But, you know, be mindful of it and, and reasonable. Reasonable is such an important Buddhist word, I find, for, for living your life. Be reasonable. There's so many things that we see in the world that aren't reasonable. It's unreasonable to expect things from others. It's unreasonable to have certain views and opinions. Buddhism is about staying reasonable. Mindfulness is very much related to that. Do you have any advice for how to find a balance between being careless about the world's problems and being overly concerned with worldly problems? I suppose reasonable is an, applies here as well. Uh, I guess I wouldn't try to find a balance. I would just try to be more mindful. Um, there's no such thing as problems. That's just a reaction to things. Reality is, is what it is. We see things as problems. So you try and reframe this the, the this situation and try and look at the world. Eta pasati mang lokang, come look at the world. Jitang raja mang that the mind sees as it's all no, it's all decked out like a king's chariot. There's so many attractive things, so many enticing things that lead us to want to get caught up in it. Only fools get get lost in it. Wise people find no connection. When I drive, should I note driving or seeing? Yeah, you can note either of those. You can also note sitting. You can. One problem with driving is with too much concentration, depending on your state of mind, you can start to fall asleep. 
So I recommend chanting when you drive can be a good alternative to mindfulness when you're when you're tired, driving at night or so on. Rather than trying to practice mindfulness, do some chanting. I mean, it keeps you focused and it keeps you alert and it keeps you alive. <laughs> All of which are important things. And you can still be mindful in between, of course, but chanting can help. I was in a relationship with a girl, but my relationship ended as I was not good enough. I feel deep regret when I try to meditate or concentrate. I get into the same regret. How can I get over it? Yeah, well, trying to get over it isn't the right uh, focus. So don't don't ask that question. Try and understand mindfulness and try to learn to be mindful of your regret. Be mindful of the feelings that lead you to regret. Mindfulness of the memories, mindfulness of the yearning for the person, that sort of thing. Try and just be mindful of the experience. How can I get over something? This isn't the kind of question you want to ask. But the fact that you can't get over it is an indication of something that you're not seeing clearly, and that's non-self, that you're not in control, that you can't just do things like get over something like as though you were in charge because you're not in charge and you're seeing that but it's you see it's it's seen as as the problem it kind of is the problem but it's the problem with reality it's not a problem you can fix and seeing that will lead to peace and happiness and freedom from suffering Is joking considered breaking the do not lie precept? Yesterday, I made up a joke and told my brother to see his reaction, but I was self-conscious and worried if this is right. We both had a laugh. Well, well there's two kinds of joking um, about do not lie. If it's you're telling a joke, like a story, a man walks into a bar or something like that, then there's no lying involved there unless you say, uh, yesterday I saw a man walk into a bar and you didn't, then, well, that's a lie. Uh, but another thing is um, lying, joking, lying as a joke. Like saying something to shock someone, your house is on fire, <laughs> just kidding. It's, still, it's also a lie. So those things are, are lying. So I'm not sure what you're talking about, but there's your answer. It's not lying to tell a made-up story. But if you make up something with the intent to make the person... It, it has to do with your intention. Do you intend to make the person believe in something that's not true? And do you say something that's not true? Those two things together, if they believe the thing that is not true, then you've told a successful lie. Successful in a bad way. Can we establish a relation between Buddhism and modern medicine? Do they have more differences or similarities? Hmm. Not many similarities I can think of. I mean, modern medicine, are you referring to physical medicine? 
or are you referring to med- mental medicine? I assume you're referring to physical medicine, which Buddhism isn't about fixing the body, so there's not really a relationship there. And maybe you mean also mental you know, psychiatry, so the application of medication to cure mental illness, there's no relationship with Buddhism there. Maybe you mean therapy. It's not likely that you're referring to psychotherapy or uh, that sort of thing. But there's some relationship there simply because many of those, many therapists have started to use mindfulness as a means of helping their patients. I don't know. I don't have much to say otherwise. Today we've come to the end of the hour and asked all the questions we're prepared to ask today. Okay, thank you all. Appreciate that everyone still comes out to these. Thank you for joining. Thank you for your help, Chris, and who's in our chat. We have Jim. Is Jim here today? Rahid. Is Rahid here today? Rahid. We have Rahid. Jim is not here. Thank you, Rahid. Thank you, Chris. Have a good week, everyone. Sad, sad, sad.